Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Evanston. This Sunday's sermon was given by Senior Pastor, Rev. Dr. Ray Hilton. If you'd like more information about First Presbyterian Church of Evanston, please visit firstpresevanston.org. Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verses 1 through 11. Please join me in a prayer for illumination. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term, that her penalty is paid, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries out, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all people shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are grass. Their constancy is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good tidings. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. His reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead the mother's sheep. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, First Prayers. It's good to be with you today on this second Sunday of Advent. We continue our series that we started last Sunday, God Came Near. And last Sunday, we tried to wrap our mind around Isaiah 64, where in that chapter we heard the desperation, we heard anguish, we heard words of lament, words of disappointment, most likely from the prophet and from God's people. But then in today's reading, it's as if the page is flipped, literally. And in Isaiah 40, God is not hidden. 
God is not distant. God is not silent. But what we find here in the text is that God is a God who cries out. We hear God's plea for that voice to be lifted up, where God defends, where God's glory is revealed, where God is active. And so I started thinking, my, thinking to myself that if the word in Isaiah 64 was desperation, then the word in Isaiah 40 is consolation. And before we come to the communion table, I want to share a few thoughts with you about the application of wisdom, the application of wisdom so that as we read the scriptures, we can know and understand the ways of God. Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You see, I happen to believe that for, Christian and, for Christians and for non-Christians, God's ways are hard to understand. And maybe that's why we read words like this in Isaiah 55 and verse 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways. There's always more to God. There's always more to what God is doing than the human mind can comprehend at any given time. Let me say that again. There's always more to what God is doing than the human mind can comprehend at any given time. Do you agree? The reason why this is such an important topic for me is that part of the ministry that God has given me is to lovingly engage with people who struggle to believe. And most often, these are people outside the church. They may have been Christians at one time. They may have been participants in a church at one time. But over the course of their lives, they've experienced some challenge, some way of experiencing hardship and pain in the world. And they struggle to understand what God is doing. And so part of what I try to do is to help people understand this very statement that I just said. There's always more to what God is doing than the human mind can comprehend. Let me give you an example. So I try to imagine to myself that if Isaiah 39, if the book of Isaiah ended at Isaiah 39, this is how the book would end. This is how, I, if, if, if all Isaiah had were 39 chapters, this is how the book would end. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Now, without fully understanding God's ways, we could easily conclude that the book ends with a voice of judgment, that God simply gave up on his people, 
But that is not the end of the story. And if that's all you see of God's work in the world, then you would conclude that this God is not worthy of worship and obedience. That's one of the reasons why generations of skeptics, you could go all the way back to second century Marcion, who dismissed the Old Testament because he didn't like the picture that the Old Testament portrays of God and preferred the New Testament. You could go from Marcion to Voltaire, a 17th century skeptic, to Jefferson, even to the late Richard Dawkins. And just a, a long line of thinkers who, and these are my words, they would cherry pick the ways of God, the wisdom of God, based on their perceived knowledge of God's ways. And they stop at the basis of what they think they know. And so I'm still trying to get over a quote that I read many years ago in Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion. And I think even in his book, which was widely read and is still being read around the world, he fails to see the breadth of the ways of God. So here's what he said about God. That the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. That this God is jealous and proud and petty and unjust, unforgiving, a control freak, vindicative, vindictive, bloodthirsty, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, pestilential, megalomaniac, meg, megalomaniac, I can't even say the word, megalomaniacal is the word, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. That's his view of God. That's his view of the ways of God. Now, if Isaiah 39 ended with the way, if the book of Isaiah ended at Isaiah 39, I could see his point. But you turn the page over to Isaiah 40, and suddenly you wonder, is this the same God? You know, when we were busy parenting our little ones, and it seemed like only yesterday, Judith and I can remember some days when our children thought that we walked on water. And they would say things like, Dad and Mom, you are just the best in the world. And you know why they were saying that? Because in their eyes and in their perceived experience of us, we had either made the right move, we had bought them the perfect gift, we had given them some kind of permission, we had given them something they really, really wanted. But then we have been parents long enough to also have days when those same little guys said, Mom and Dad, you are mean. You don't love us. You don't care about us. And again, why? Because in those moments, we displayed parental wisdom that was unpopular to them. Unpopular to them. And so what I want to do before we go to the communion table is to use Isaiah 40 and just give you three examples that I think are indicative of the ways in which we can apply God's wisdom through Scripture 
And by understanding God's wisdom and God's ways, it will bring us comfort and it will bring us peace. Doesn't save us from calamity, doesn't necessarily save us from mystery and conundrums, but at least it will set us up to understand that there is more to God and more to God's ways than we're seeing. So here are the three examples from Isaiah 40. The idea of judgment and grace, understanding the notion of judgment and grace. So you read the first 39 chapters of Isaiah and the picture of God definitely is that of a judge. And I could go back and show you numerous, numerous examples where we read of God's wrath, God's anger, God's intention to bring judgment on his people. And what you find in Isaiah 39 is a clear statement that in the sixth century, Babylon would invade Judah, would destroy much of Jerusalem, would disrupt the economy, would deport all the leading citizens of Babylon. And you say, well, why? And the answer may shock you. God's people have rebelled and God's people have sinned against God. And so when we think about the nature of God, we understand that part of that nature is that God is a judge and God judged them. Now, if I were to ask the average person on the street, what do you think about God? I know many people will come up with a list of qualities, good, kind, faithful, loving, and so on and so forth. But many people would hesitate to mention the word God as judge. And for many skeptics and many Christians, the notion that God expresses wrath and judgment against sin and rebellion is hard to accept because we all like to limit ourselves to a God that works according to our sense of what is good and fear. In Isaiah 40 and verse 13, we have a series of questions. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or, has, or as his counselor had instructed him? And the answer is no one, no one. And that's the reason why Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he cautions against this very simplistic, one-dimensional view of God. And he basically says, if God is not judge, we end up with cheap grace. And he famously said, cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. We've got to be careful of that, that we don't end up with this distorted view of God. We cannot separate God's judgment from God's grace and forgiveness. And once we do that, once we only focus on a God of grace, then we end up with something that is cheap. And if we only focus on the judgment of God, then we end up with sin and sheer retribution. And I think both extremes are wrong, and both extremes put us into a ditch. What we find in Isaiah is this wonderful combination of God as both judge 
and God who is gracious. And so, yes, Israel rejected God. And even though God judged them, God did not reject them. Like tiny children who have stumbled in uncertain paths, God has come and lifted up his bruised, his bruised children into his arms. And Almighty God says, and you'll see that in our text this morning, that your penalty is paid. You have received from the Lord's hand double for your sins. So God gave them more grace than even what they deserve. They've received from the Lord's hand a double portion of God's grace for their sins. And so if you only think about God in one way, you're going to miss so much of who God is. Here's another example from Isaiah 40 that helps us to, to see the mystery of the ways of God, that understanding that this life, this very life that God gave us, that we, we should live and enjoy, is temporary, and yet God is eternal. And often that goes something like this, you know, why do good people die? Or why is there death and suffering in the world? And so on and so forth. And what Isaiah wants us to understand this morning as we think about God is that the things of this world are transient. And you ask any survivor who has gone through any kind of tragedy, any kind of disaster, and they will tell you without certainty that this life is short-lived. Here's how Isaiah says it. Here's what he says about life in this world. All people are grass. Their constancy or their glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fails or fades, but the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely people are like grass. And a few days ago, as Judith and I were doing final cleaning up of the leaves and the beds and everything, I started asking her, I said, I just wish that geraniums were perennials. Because I love geraniums. I love the smell of them. I love the fact that they just keep giving you flowers all through the summer and into the late fall. But at some point, these perennials, these, these geraniums are not perennials, they're annuals. And they have a life cycle. And after a time, that plant dies, the flower fades, and the cycle of that perennial is over. And then come next spring, we start all over again with a new set of geraniums. I think that's what Isaiah is saying to us, that even though there is this loving God, this eternal God, because of human sin and rebellion, everyone and everything in this life is stamped with the words temporary and unreliable. Ecclesiastes says there's a time to be born and there's a time to die. And you and I don't get the freedom to say, well, this is how I want to leave this world. We just don't. And some people say, well, if this is all there is, that you live and you die, then what's the point? It seems pretty hopeless. It seems rather nihilistic. That life th seems pretty shallow and pointless and miserable. You know, the, the idea of the, that human life is like the grass that fades, the flower that fades. But Isaiah says one other thing about God. 
And sometimes our eyes definitely can't see this about God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So as you think about your life in this world and you see the death and you see the destruction and you see the crime and you see the, the failures of our politicians and the failures of our pastors and even our own failures and the unreliability that we see all around us, this is not a time to give up and say, where is God? This is a time to say that, but there is more about God that transcends this world. God stands forever. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter refers to God's word as the imperishable seed. Heaven and earth, Jesus says, will pass away. But God's word endures forever. So if you're looking for something that is permanent in this life, I'm sorry to tell you, you're not going to find it. Enjoy this life. But you're not going to find anything that is permanent. And that's why we have to look to God as the only permanent and sure one. So we're looking at God's word for wisdom. And Almighty God shows us attributes of judgment and grace. Almighty God shows us the, the temporariness of life and the eternalness of God. And now the Lord wants us to see the wisdom that is found in understanding God as both a king and a shepherd. Isaiah 40 declares, say to the cities of Judah, and if I can just pause here for a minute and have you think with me, because I really struggle to understand this part of Isaiah 40, because so far the first two voices that we're crying out are not identified. But here in verse 9 and 10, we're told that God is saying to Zion, get you up to a high mountain, go up to a high mountain, O Zion, and say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. And what do we see of this God? First, that this God comes with might and his arm rules for him, his reward is with him and his recompense or his reward is before him. And the idea here is that this, this, this God comes to us as a warrior, as a king, as one who is going to set the world right, as one who is going to turn back the darkness and fix all the brokenness that is in our world. But then if that's the only view you have of God, suddenly you get to verse 11 and, say, and it says, here is your God who will feed his flock like a shepherd. So you have this image of God as a king, this image of God as a shepherd. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead the mother sheep. And this image of God as king and a shepherd is one that the people of the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they really struggled. Who is this Jesus? Because they had one view of Jesus. They thought he was going to come as some mighty warrior and just drive back the Romans. And yes, he is king, but his methods are different. God is both king 
and shepherd. He rules and he cares for his people. And I don't want you to be troubled by that. David was called a shepherd and a king. But someone greater than David is here. And that's the reason why for centuries Christians have used these texts to speak of two advents. That God came in the world as a defenseless baby who grows up to give his life as a ransom for the sin of the world. And for the Jews, that was a stumbling block. For the Greeks, that was foolishness. You can keep that kind of God. We want a God, as far as the Greeks were concerned, who was far removed from this world, who would not even deign to touch the, the, the sinfulness and the ugliness of our world. The, the Jews wanted a Messiah who would come and walk with them and crush their enemies. And Jesus didn't fit the mold of the Jews or the Greeks. And so the Greeks scoffed and the Jews rejected him. But that is only the first advent because tucked away in the teachings of Jesus, in the book of Revelation, is another advent where Jesus says, I'm coming again. And do you remember that scene where Jesus, in the book of Luke and in the book of Acts, is ascending back to the Father and the disciples are standing there looking and the angel appears to them and says, Men of Israel, why do you stand here gazing into the heaven, this same Jesus that you see going? will come again in like manner. Christians believe in two advents. Jesus is coming again. And in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, Jesus says, see, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me to repay according to everyone's work. I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And so we need that full-orbed picture of God. And right now, a lot of people are wondering, where is God? What is God up to? And we gain wisdom, and we gain understanding in the ways of God when we read the Word of God. And I challenge you, my brothers and sisters, to become more literate, in the word of God. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will endure forever. And the best thing for mortals like us to do is to hook ourselves into that which is enduring. And that is the word of God. And when you read that word, you will discover that God is not weak. God is not ineffectual. God is not powerless. God has a plan for the world. And we see that plan unfolding, and that's why we have these times of the year called Advent, where we pause and reflect on the life of Jesus, both his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and his coming again to remind us. And that in itself gives us peace. So as we come to the communion table, and I hope you received a, a communion cup all the way from Palestine. I hope you got one. 
It's part of the Advent gift from our church to you and to your family. I hope you received one. And if you didn't receive one, let us know and we will get one of those Advent kits out to you. But as we come to the communion table, the greatest comfort, the greatest peace is in knowing and resting in God's plan through Jesus for our lives and for this world. And it's not always clear what God is up to, but don't settle, don't give up, don't discard, don't, don't put God in a box, but allow for the breath of scripture to give you wisdom to understand the mystery and the ways of God. Those who know their God will trust in him. And we won't find God through our feelings. We won't find God through our opinions. We might see glimpses of God through nature, but we really won't find the, 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 the fullness of who God is by just looking at nature. God has come to us personally and specifically through Jesus Christ. We come to God through Jesus who put on flesh. And Jesus told the disciples and Jesus is telling us this morning that if you can just see me and understand me, you will see the Father, you will know the Father, and you will have a relationship with the Father. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.